Peace be with you. Um, before we hop into the uh, actual sermon, a couple of things. One just for, uh, for f- fun. Uh, well, two things for fun. I don't know if you, if you heard the babies. Uh, first service, we had a few babies crying at the, in the, during the worship time. And I just want to say to you, like, get used to it. We, we, got, we got five more babies that we know of that are on the way uh, coming into the Sojourn family. So uh, we love having those little lives around here. And um, uh, so anyway. Thank you, moms and dads, and for the journey that you're having with parenthood. That's, that's a fun time. Second thing, um, yesterday, uh, my, my family and I, we uh, floated down the Platte River, and um, we got done, like got off the river at like 4 o'clock or something, I don't know, and we get in our car, and we're driving back from the end of the Platte River uh, back, and we're coming back across 31, and um, we are starting to get towards Interlochen, and I see something on the side, and it's like, what did I just see? And then as we get closer to interlocking corners, more starts populating. And if you, maybe you heard this, but yesterday, th- this, this is the scene at interlocking corners. That, that, it looks like piles of snow. Now, I know you can call it hail, but that, that look, like you could make a snowman. And if you don't believe me, check, check this. That's what was happening at, in, in the afternoon yesterday. And so I know we complain about how long the winter is, uh, but we, we just got snow in, we got snow in July here. So um, anyway, we were on the river, and we never, never had a drop of rain, never a, a, a single thing of hail, no snow. Um, so anyway, maybe you got to see that, but uh, it's a fun experience in the middle of July. Um, and then uh, on a more serious note, uh, it is July, and it's, uh, that means it's mid-year for us. Our fiscal year runs January 1 through December 31. So uh, as of June 30th, that means we're halfway, we're halfway through our, our fiscal year. And we just want to take a quick minute and give you, give you an update on our finances. So coming into this year, uh, we had the largest uh, budget uh, that we've ever had. We, we had a $782,000 budget. Um, and our church is 101 years old. And that's, our, that's the largest budget we, we've, we've ever had. Um, and so uh, if you can do math, you know, if you divide that by two, it's uh, 390, uh, 391. It was, is, is what our projected income would be at mid-year. Uh, our actual income at mid-year is 330000 So that's 61000 off, 16% off of the projected. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what it is. The actual income, those 330000 our actual expenses uh, are three twenty eight. So um, that's an actual, uh, we're, we're, I guess we're up by 2,000, uh, just slightly over 100% of, of uh, ex- actual expenses to actual income. Um, and so, you know, coming into this year, uh, we've been through a, a journey like a lot of churches have over the last few years. Uh, COVID was, uh, was, was a little bit of a disruptive thing for us. And then we had a staff transition at the end of 2021. And, um, and coming into this year, you know, our, our elders, as we were putting the budget together, we said there's a season for saving and there's a season for spending. And we have had eight straight years where our church has ended in the black. And some of those years, it's uh, ended quite notably in the black. And so as we were coming into this year and we were actually saying, man, we, we think there's some opportunities in front of us and, and we might need to give some extra fuel to the engines to, to get things uh, running again. Uh, we came into this year uh, anticipating the fact that it may, maybe uh, having our largest budget ever would end up with us having a, a, a red year. And, uh, and we were actually fine with, with trusting God with, with that decision. And so you know, here we are mid-year. And, uh, and we're basically tracking our, our budget with our expenses. So I want to thank our ministry people and ministry team, ministry volunteers, uh, for having an eye towards, uh, towards the expenses. I also want to thank you as a congregation for, for uh, giving generously. Uh, us being at this point mid-year is actually a pretty healthy number for us in a, in a, normal, in a normal year. And so uh, thank you for those of you who, who partner with us. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we, we think it's a good idea to partner is um, what, what, we're, what we're trying to do uh, as, as a church family. Um, you know, we, we um, the last few years, uh, as all the relational disruption has, has occurred in our culture from polit- politics to pandemics and, and all the things in between, uh, starting in 2021, our, our church, we've always appreciated the spiritual discipline of celebration. You know, we don't call our dinners fellowship dinners. We call them parties. And uh, in 2021, we, we started leaning into that a little bit more and saying, hey, um, you know, pe- people need to, we need to figure out how people can get together 
and, and spend time together. And so for the last few years, we've been leaning into parties a, a, a little bit more with the hope that um, the relational connections would, would, would grow. Uh, also during the summer, a lot of our community groups kind of uh, take, take the summer off or slow down notably. And so these, these 100 parties in 100 days are a way uh, that we can pursue that and try to maybe restore some of the relational friction and tensions that, uh, that have bubbled up over the last few years. But I, what I want to say is that we, we want to dare great things for God. And so far this year, there's a couple doors that we had uh, maybe uh, prayed about and dreamed about that would open, and they haven't quite opened, uh, at least not the way that we thought. And so we, you know, we hold those things open-handed before God. Uh, but man, if they do open, uh, we want to take our best shot at, at walking, walking through those, those doors. Uh, we want to help people follow Jesus. That, that's that's our, our mission statement. It's what we want to be about, is helping people follow Jesus. Um, and we want a growing number of those people that we're helping uh, to be people who are far from God. And man, we, we love our partnership with the other churches in Traverse City. We love the way that God is at work uh, in multiple congregations across this, this region. Um, and, and one of the things that we, we want to, to, to be proactive on is actually reaching people who are far from God. And so, you know, a lot of that, uh, the best way for that to happen is word of mouth. It's for, for you to actually uh, figure out creative and effective ways to navigate uh, conversations with your coworkers and your neighbors and your, and your friends. Uh, but we also, as a church family, want to be uh, growing in our opportunities to provide resources that you can use uh, to expose your friends uh, to, the, to the good news about Jesus. And so, you know, if we're keeping an eye on our current cultural moment, um, we, we know we're going to have to get personally passionate about it about the gospel, and we're going to have to get corporately creative, and uh, we want to do it. And so when you give, when you give financially, you're helping us uh, dream, and you're helping us think about creative ways to reach the, uh, the world as it is right now. Uh, with timing and intentionality and, and all, all of that stuff. So if you are a regular giver, thank you for your partnership, man. We, we appreciate it. Um, we are, uh, yeah, to have eight straight black years uh, is pretty, pretty phenomenal. And we uh, celebrate those of you who partnered with us to, to do that. Uh, if you're not a regular giver, it's actually really, really easy. Uh, there's giving boxes uh, in the foyer and out by the front door, and you're free to use those at any time. But honestly, the simplest way is there, there's an app called Church Center. And it's not exclusive to us. It's just the app that, that we use. And so you can download it. There's a QR code right there. Uh, you, you, can, you can download that app and then, uh, you know, a bunch of churches in our area use it. You, so make sure, you, make sure you find Sojourn Church. Um, but then you, you, you get connected with Sojourn Church and then you can, you can give. You can give one time. You can set up regular giving, all, all kinds of things. If you connect your bank account, uh, it's a 30 cent charge when you, when you give. And so basically all the money you give comes to us. Uh, you know, you don't have to pay fees. We don't have to pay fees. And uh, a lot of you are doing that. And uh, we, we thank you for it. And it's, uh, it's a way that we partner together because uh, all of these ideas and dreams and ministry itself, they, it does take money. And so thank you for those of you who've uh, uh, brought, brought a lot of these things to life. And we're excited for the future. We're, we're starting to see some flashes and some flares of, of uh, some exciting things coming down the road. So I uh, wanted to give you that update. Okay, so we've been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> and this is uh, Matthew part 18. Uh, when we got to chapter 5, uh, what happens in Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus starts this really famous uh, section of Matthew's Gospel. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and so at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives this list of things. And when we hit chapter 5, we just slow down. And said, let's, let's, take, let's take a closer look at, at this list of what Jesus is giving us. And, and what they're called, uh, they're often referred to as the Beatitudes. And if your Bible has subtitles, uh, your Bible might, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, say the Beatitudes. And so just real quick, you know, it, it, we've talked about this almost every week. But here, here's what we're, we're recognizing. We, we all long for happiness. This is the human condition. We, we all want happiness. And we're not just looking for fluffy feelings. Like we are looking for deep satisfaction, what, what you might call flourishing. And that's where the Beatitudes, they, they fit right in. Uh, that word Beatitude is a weird word. We don't say it a lot. Uh, but the origin of it is this. Uh, that word blessed that you see there at the beginning of chapter, or the beginning of verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, it's a, this was originally written in Greek. And that Greek word is the Greek word makarios. When the Bible was translated from Greek to, to Latin, it was translated from makarios to beatus. And you can see how beatus would uh, give us the word beatitude. Then when it was translated into English, most English versions decided to go with the word blessed. So it went from makarios to beatus to blessed. 
Um, now, that's the definition or that's the, the, the etymology of that word, but it doesn't tell us what, it, what they are. What, what are the Beatitudes? And the, and the definition that we've been using is that the Beatitudes are a description of the good life from Jesus' perspective. So in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus goes up on a mountain and sits down. That's what an authoritative teacher does. And then he gives us his pitch, for, pitch of the good life. Every great teacher does this. They say this is the good life. This is how to live. And so what Jesus does is he sits down and then he gives us his pitch of the good life. And he starts off with these statements, these, these beatitudes. And we've said they're not divine blessings. They're not commands. Uh, maybe a helpful way to think about it is they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. From Jesus' perspective, these are the people that are flourishing. And so it's like Jesus is walking around and pointing out people. And he looks at them and says, oh, see, that, that, that person's poor in spirit. That's a flourishing person. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Oh, look at that person. That person mourns what's broken. Flourishing are the mourners. And his list seems upside down to us. It's, it's, a, little, it's a, little, a little confusing. Who, who wants to be poor in spirit? Who wants to be a mourner? But Jesus is inviting us to see the world from his perspective. And his perspective often comes across as an upside-down kingdom. And as we've walked through these various beatitudes, um, what we saw was that Jesus is indicating that when you're poor in spirit, what's happening there is you actually are admitting that your biggest problems are bigger than you, that you need help. Well, man, if you're a person who recognizes that the biggest problems in the world are bigger than you, that sets you up in a perfect way to recognize how much you need Jesus. Uh, flourishing are the mourners, or blessed are the mourners. Nobody wants to be a mourner, but Jesus is saying, if you actually look at the world and you see that it's broken, and you see that this is not how it was supposed to be, that betrayal should never have happened, that divorce should never have happened, that death should never have happened, that cancer diagnosis should have never happened, that's not how the world was made, and you allow yourself to mourn that, Jesus says that's the flourishing life. You recognize that this world is not as it should be. As we went through all of these various Beatitudes, we continued to see how Jesus is saying, if you've taken that attitude, if you've taken that posture, it sets you up to see Jesus more clearly. Well, last week we got to the pure in heart. And I said last week that several commentators see the pure in heart as kind of the climax of the Beatitudes. It's a positive Beatitude. All the other ones feel kind of heavy, but pure in heart... I mean, that's, that sounds good. Like most people want that. And so some commentators see that Jesus is making the case that if you will recognize that your problems are bigger than you, if you'll mourn what's broken, if you'll have a, a meek heart, if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, then it sets you up to live in this way that's pure in heart. And pure in heart doesn't necessarily have to do with just going and doing right things. It actually has to, uh, much more a sense of like the, the, the posture of your heart or the condition of your heart, that you're clean at the center, at the control center of your life. And that creates this, this willingness to actually trust, to, to assume the best about other people. Uh, not, not to be naive, but to be somebody who trusts. And if, that, if, if you're pure in heart, that means that you actually are willing to take God at his word. That you're actually willing to, to hear what God says about the world and about you and about the reality of sin. And you're actually willing to hear what he has to say in the person of Jesus. And it sets you up. And, and Jesus says, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Bible often equates sight with faith or faith with sight. And that when someone comes to faith, that they actually are, that you, now I see. They're, they're given spiritual eyes. They're given spiritual life. And so if we were to treat that as the climax of the, of the uh, Beatitudes, we're, we're going to then treat these last, these last Beatitudes all together. And what you'll see in those last verses, if you have your Bible open, in verses 9, you see Jesus says, flourishing are the peacemakers. They should be called sons of God. And then in verses uh, 11 and 12, uh, 10, 11, yeah, 10, 11, and 12, he talks about the persecuted. And some scholars see this as two Beatitudes. Uh, verse 10 is a Beatitude, and then verse 11 and 12 as another Beatitude. And that's in part because if you'll notice in verses 11 and 12, Jesus inserts the pronoun you. And Jesus has never used any pronoun. He has not used the word you at all through the Beatitudes. So a lot of scholars see that Jesus is doing something different in verses 11 and 12. But whether you see these last, these last verses as two Beatitudes or three Beatitudes, I got good news for you. We're going to treat them as one. Uh, we're going to treat them all together uh, today as we uh, round out the, the uh, Jesus' language here on the Beatitudes. So the peacemakers and the persecuted. They are both personally experiencing the brokenness 
of relationships in the world. See, the peacemakers are actively trying to repair it. That's what a peacemaker does. A peacemaker is looking at a situation and saying, I want to make this right. The peacemaker, it might be part of their own fault or their own story. They might be part of who needs to be made peace with, or they might be jumping into somebody else's mess and saying, I'm actually going to try these two people, I'll try to help these two people uh, make peace. And, you know, there's a, a career field called counselor, and that's what counselors do. Do you know that? Like every single day of their life, all day long, they sit down and they actually try to help two people who they, it's not none of their stuff. They're trying to help somebody else's mess. That, that's incredible to actually invest yourself uh, like that. And so peacemakers are actively trying to repair peace. The persecuted are trying to process the loss of peace. The, the persecuted are, are looking at their life. So the, the peacemaker might be saying, you know, how can this relationship be restored? Um, the, you know, and and how, can, how can it be fixed? But the persecuted are often asking questions like, how do I respond to this situation? What, what, what should I do? Should I defend myself? You know, do I fight back? Are my accusers right? Do I deserve this? And so you, you have these two groups, and while the, the dynamics are different between the two of them, they're both experiencing that reality of the loss of peace. Peacemakers are trying to repair it. The persecuted are experiencing the realities of it. They're trying to process the fact uh, that something is not right uh, in their life. Can you relate? Can you relate to the loss of peace? Can you relate to the feelings of, of looking around and feeling like either the people in your life need help repairing it, uh, or the relationships in your life need help repairing it, being repaired, or you're suffering, you're, you're being persecuted. You know, Jesus actually, in, 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 the, in the Beatitudes, he actually says that there's those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And so we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that here in a minute. But maybe you can relate to this. Uh, so how we're going to spend the rest of our time, though, is I'm going to kind of deal with this indirectly. Uh, and so instead of dealing directly with the peacemakers and directly with the persecuted, what, what I actually want to do is spend our time investigating the subject of peace itself. And so over the course of this sermon, we're going to ask, or we're going to consider what peace is, why we need peace, and then how we can find peace. So uh, let's, let's uh, take a look here. First, what peace is. The, the word peace, and this is not original to me, this is what a lot of Bible scholars say, the, the word peace is among the richest and fullest words in the Bible. The Hebrew word is the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, when uh, in, in the Greek language, uh, the, the, there's a, a Greek word that they use to translate the Hebrew word shalom, and it's irene. And the word irene has actually made it into the English language as a transliteration. If you've ever actually said that was very irenic. Now, you might not have any friends after that if you use words like that. But if you do say that was irenic, you're saying that was, that was very peaceful. Or if you know someone named Irene, that name Irene means peace or peaceful. And it's probable that you've, you've heard that usage. Well, that's a transliteration from the, this Greek word that is the root word of Jesus when he says peacemaker. He's saying Irene, Irenic. The, the, these people are after this idea of peace. And it's the, the, it's the New Testament word that's reflecting the Old Testament word, shalom. And Jesus actually says, flourishing are the people who invest time and energy in pursuing this kind of peace. Well, I said it was one of the richest and fullest words in the Bible. What, what is it? What, what's the biblical idea of peace? Well, the biblical idea of peace involves these kinds of ideas. Completeness. Flourishing. Absence of conflict. And one of our favorite ways to talk about it here, wholeness. This kind of peace carries the ideas of prosperity and success. It carries the idea of intactness, that everything is together. It's all integrated. It has the idea of health, of deliverance, of salvation, as the absence of conflict and war. Wholeness. That, that, that's what it's suggesting. It's suggesting that it's all working right. Now, the peace in the Bible is extremely relational. And so while it, it certainly references all the systems, it seems to weight itself towards relationships, that it's suggesting that everything is right, every system and every relationship. And if we were going to consider what the Bible has to say, the Bible would say that the most significant relationship in your life, whether you know it or not, is your relationship with the God who created you. Now, I understand if you're here today and you say, that's not my opinion, 
I don't think that that's my most important relationship. Like, I get it. I, I understand. There's a lot of people that have come to that conclusion. But I'm saying that if you were to read the Bible, the Bible would invite you to consider the fact that that actually is the most important relationship that you'll ever have. And that peace has a direct relationship, a, de- a direct impact on that relationship. Peace is reaching into every relationship with God, with each other, with the broader community, with creation, with our own selves. Have you ever felt disintegrated? Have you ever felt like you don't have intactness, that you don't have wholeness in your own heart? This is the, the idea of the Bible is inviting those kinds of considerations, all of it. So if that's peace, every system working, every relationship working right, if that's peace, why isn't that the experience of our lives in this world? Why is that not the way things are? Uh, I mean, my guess is that if you're older than 10 years old, you you know that that is not how things roll, Uh, that you are often experiencing either needing to be the peacemaker or being the one who's feeling the loss of peace, maybe even as far as persecution. Why do we need peacemakers? Why are people persecuted? I mean, again, Jesus says that some people are actually persecuted for righteousness sake. That happens in our world. Why? Well, that's our second point. Why do we need peace? The answer in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, it tells us that sin shattered peace. That sin shattered it. That what the Bible tells us is that sin brought death into the world, and death, what's the definition of death? Death means separation. That's what death is. When, When a loved one dies, they are separated from the people that they love. Their body is separated from their soul. This is the separation that is experienced with death. And when the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that when sin showed up and it brought death, it says that among all of the deaths that sin brings, the most tragic one is separation from God. It brings separation with each other. It brings separation with our own selves. But the most tragic one is separation from God. And it happens in just the third chapter of the Bible. Can you believe that? In the first two chapters, we have total shalom, total peace, everything working right. And in just the third chapter, sin comes in and shatters that peace, and then it spreads like a cancer from there. It separates creation from God. It separates humanity from God. It separates you from the God of life. And the Bible says this is a tragedy. This is a massive problem that you have been cut off from the source of life. If that's all true, it means we have a serious problem. See, the Bible is suggesting that when your heart is filled with, with, with the peace of God, that, that results in confidence and trust in God's wise control in your life. You, you, you can rest in that. But when your heart is empty of that peace, the result is anxiety. You know, the Bible says this in a few different places, that, that you, you, you come apart at, at the seams, that that's what the loss of peace brings. And if it's true that the lack of peace brings anxiety, well, it is on display all around us. I mean, have have you looked around recently? From the youngest to the oldest, anxiety is on the rise, and it is alarming. Mental health concerns are escalating dramatically. And we have some some professionals in our church family who, that's what they do for a living, is they, they are counselors, and their wait lists are long. I found some stats from the University of, uh, from Pepperdine University, and they, they did a bunch of research on mental health on their campus and on campuses in America, and they came out of this, and they said there are two statistics that we cannot ignore, and, and, and this is the gist of the two things that they said we cannot ignore. The number of students seeking help at university counseling centers has increased dramatically in recent years. Anxiety and depression have a clear growth trend. They said, we are living in an age of anxiety, and it's important that we pull the cloak off of it. So the first thing is, this spike uh, can't be ignored anymore. It is a growth trend of anxiety and depression. And then they said the second thing is, you know, national surveys of college students reveal alarming, an alarming number of students struggling, and this is what it says, among undergraduates, 61% report experiencing overwhelming anxiety, 40% report feeling so, dis- so depressed it was difficult to function at times, and 13% reported uh, seriously considering suicide. It's alarming, 
to college campuses. It's alarming to counselors. It's alarming to sociologists, but not just on college campuses. These numbers are from a college, but those numbers are reflected all over the country in every age group. Suicide rates are not just rising among young people. Uh, They're rising in every age group. They're not just rising with one gender. They're rising with both genders. Uh, it It is a serious problem in our culture. And I want to tell you that these percentages or these stats from Pepperdine are actually from 2019. And I wanted to find stats from pre-COVID because what experts, what mental health experts say is that they've seen a 25% increase since the start of COVID in mental health issues. So as bad as it was before COVID hit, it's notably worse now. And there's this overwhelming sense of the world feeling like it's spinning out of control this sense of anxiety, this sense of of pressure, of depression, of is it working? Is my life worth it? All of these fundamental questions. And this is just one aspect of the loss of peace or the loss of shalom. We, we, We could point to our online discourse. We could point to the pornographic images that flood the internet. We could point to sexual abuse. We could point to violent crimes. We could point to scandals, to betrayals, to persecution of many different people groups for many different reasons on many different continents. You know, if you've spent a lot of time in the church and you hear the word persecution, your first thought or maybe your only thought would be persecuted Christians. And, and that, that is a very real problem. It's been a real problem for, for thousands of years. And it's a problem in our world right now. Christians are persecuted for their faith. It's a real problem. But and, you know, Jesus says, uh, flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for, for my, on my account. And so Jesus is, is pointing, pointing his finger right at that issue. But it's also important to remember that persecution happens to different people groups on different continents for very different reasons all the time. In other words, we're full of a world where persecution is part of the story. This, la- this loss of peace is experienced in all of our relationships, including our relationship with God. You know, the brokenness is everywhere. It's a severe problem. The, the lack of peace should put on the radar that we desperately need peace, that the loss of it hasn't gone well. That as we said in Genesis chapter 3, peace sh- uh, sin, pa- sin shattered peace, and it has spread like a cancer ever since. And that spread has reached all the way to your heart. That's what the Bible actually has to say, is that there's no one righteous, that every one of us has been separated from God because of sin, that that's actually the human condition. Now, if you're here and you're like saying, man, I don't like hearing this. There's enough bad news in the world. I mean, it hailed yesterday in the middle of the summer. Like there's plenty of bad news out there. There's plenty of tragic things. You don't even know what's going on in my life. I have to face this every day. I face it on my way in here. I'm going to face it when I go home. Like, I don't need to hear more about the brokenness of the world. I don't need to hear more about the loss of peace. Can we just talk about positive things? Well, let let me tell you what what God actually said to his people in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6. This is what he says. This is God speaking. He says, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And so God looks at the religious leaders of Israel and he says, what are you doing? You're telling my people that there's not a real problem and it's a real problem. You're minimizing it when it's incredibly serious. And so while I don't like dwelling on bad news either, I also want to be the kind of person that tells you the truth, that that reveals to you what God has to say about the world in which we're trying to navigate. And one of the things that God has to say about the world is that sin has shattered peace, including the peace of your heart with the God who created you, and we're in desperate need of that peace to be restored. Well, how can we get it? How can can we find that, that peace? Well, the peacemaker and the persecuted are, are both longing for peace. And man, there is a wide variety of ways that can bring peace. As I said a moment ago, when a counselor sits down and has the generosity of spirit to sit down and help two other people figure out their problems, 
Uh, they, they may be able to actually bring a level of, of harmony to that relationship. They actually may be uh, able to uh, at least arrange a ceasefire, you know, between, <laughs> between, between the two parties. Um, there, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which we can, can bring peace. There's treaties between nations. There, there's, there's all kinds of, of, of different ways. But the Bible is primarily concerned with a deeper source of peace, a deeper source than just a relational ceasefire or even uh, a reconciliation between uh, two, two friends. And I want to spend the rest of our time exploring how the identity that Jesus offers in the gospel offers the resources to be the peacemakers and to endure the hardships of this life the way that Jesus is celebrating in Matthew chapter 5. And so I, 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 want, to, I want to lean into this idea of identity. And, and you know, there's a, a lot of authors, uh, both Christian and non-Christian, who have invested a lot of time and energy on this subject of identity. And it's really interesting. The further you go back in history, the less discussion there actually is about identity. Uh, a couple generations ago, that wasn't the language that was used at all. And yet, over the recent decades, it's become the dominant way of actually navigating the world. And so even if they weren't using the word identity, it's still a dynamic at, place in, at, at play in the world. How do you know your significance? How do you know if you're a good person? How do you know if you're worth anything? Th th these are questions that have been asked all along the way, even if the word identity wasn't the word that they necessarily used. Uh, the authors that have addressed this from a uh, more Christian perspective, there's a guy named Philip Reef. Uh, there's a guy named Charles Taylor. Uh, these are both really, uh, really, really smart philosophers who have wrestled and tried to navigate what's going on in this broader cultural movement. And I have read both of them, but not extensively because they break my brain. I try my best, but these guys are philosophers and philosophers are hard to understand. And so I have Charles Taylor's book, if you, uh, two of them, I think, if you want to borrow one, um, you can uh, go mad as well. Um, but I'm also thankful, not just for those guys who have been really trying to do the philosophical work, but for others who have taken what they've written and helped kind of digest it a little bit and then shared it with us in maybe a little bit more of an accessible way. And so people that would be in that category would be people like James K.A. Smith from, uh, from Calvin. And he's a philosopher too, but he's actually written some popular level books <laughs> that are comprehensible. Um, Tim, Tim Keller uh, has, has addressed these issues. Carl Truman uh, has addressed these issues. John Mark Comer, uh, a guy named Mark Sayers, uh, multiple podcasts and, and various books. And you know, we, we have some of them on our book wall. Uh, they, they never sell very good, um, but we put them out there. We put them out there to try to say, hey, these are the conversations that are happening about our current cultural moment. And so uh, I'm trying to take all of those resources and just like maybe uh, uh, try to distill them down in, in light of this subject that we're talking about today, because I, I think it has the potential of, of being helpful. So, so let, let, me, let me start off by doing this. Um, there, there, uh, when you think about this identity, uh, Charles Taylor especially kind of identifies two, two primary identities that are, play, that are in play in the world. And the first one he refers to is a traditional identity. And you say, what, you know, what, what is a traditional identity? How, you know, how does someone in a traditional identity find their significance? Th this is what the traditional identity invited. It invited you, you come into the world, and you are invited, you are, this is the way the world worked, is that you looked outside of yourself, and you were looking to find this ultimate good. And as you found this ultimate good, you would then, you know, so you go out there and you go and search for this ultimate good. You find the ultimate good, and then you come back into your own life, and you come into your internal life, and you say to your internal life, okay, internal life, now we've got to line up with that external good. Uh, I know you might want to or you might not want to. I know you might feel like it or not feel like it, but you've got to align yourself with this, this exterior ultimate good. Uh, and so some examples, maybe that's helpful. Um, men going to war. That throughout history, men, uh, it's not like they you know, wanted to go die on the battlefield as some like uh, specific idea. It was much more the sense that that was the ultimate good, was to protect the clan, to protect their people, to protect their family. And so when a threat came, they would go out to war and at great risk to their own life, often losing their own life. They would sacrifice themselves for this exterior ultimate good. Is that a hint? <clears throat> um, this, this exterior ultimate good. What about women? Historically, it's childbearing. That you, you might know this, that not only was, was war incredibly dangerous, 
But childbearing was incredibly dangerous. And yet women continued to engage in it. Why? Because this is how you kept the clan going. If, if men went to war to protect the clan, women had children in order to keep the clan going. And, and, and birth rates for the, for the children and uh, for the mother, extremely dangerous. And yet they would align their life. And they wouldn't look at it and say, I don't want to have more children because that'll mess with my body. Or I don't want to have more children because it gets in the way of my yoga. You know, it's like they, they, they had more children because that, this external ideal, this ultimate good, was what they aligned their life to. They came into their inter, inter, internal life and said, "My okay, internal life, let's align with this ultimate uh, external good. Well, okay, so you could say traditional identity is driven by duties. Now, how did someone with a traditional identity know if they were a good person? Because that, that really matters. Who, who gets to decide if you're a good person? Well, in traditional cultures with traditional identities, your family told you or, or your community told you that, that all the people that agreed on this ultimate good, this external ultimate good, they would look at your life and they would be like, you're a good person. You, you fought to protect the clan or you're a good person. You had children to, to keep the clan going, to keep our people going, to, to grow our family. And if your family or your community or your group of warriors, if they looked at you and said, you're a good person, that's all you needed. That, that's all you needed to navigate the world is that, the, 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 that your group looked at you and said, you're a good person. And that was how you had your significance. That's how you knew you were worth something. It's how you knew that your life had value and that this wasn't a worthless journey. While there's good, there's good things uh, about that. Oh, so so it, when, when your family, you know, who gets to tell you that? Uh, Charles Taylor calls that your decisive validator. Who is the person that gets the final word on whether or not you're a good person? And Charles Taylor said, in, in, in traditional cultures, it's, it's your family. They're the decisive validator. So there's some good things that come with the traditional identity, but boy, it can be suffocating. You, you, you have little to no freedom. You are born into the world, and whatever the group you're born into says is the most important thing, you got to align your life to that. Now, what about the modern identity? How do you find your significance in the modern identity? This is, this is what Charles Taylor says. He says, it is a dramatic reversal. He says, in the traditional identity, you are supposed to find this ultimate good outside of yourself, and then you come back into your internal life, and you align your internal life with the external ultimate good. He says, the modern identity has completely inverted it. The modern identity says, here's what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to go inside into yourself, into your internal life, and you're supposed to find your own ultimate good. You're supposed to find your own truth. You're supposed to find your own way of, of navigating the world. And then you take what you find and you turn back out to the world and you expect the world to align with what you have found. And so the traditional identity says, going inside, or, you know, it's external good, I'm going to align my life, I'm going to argue with myself to align with this out external good. The modern person says, I'm going to go inside, find my truth, and then I'm going to argue with the world to align with me, to align with my truth, to align with how I'm seeing things. And if you've been paying attention to what's going on in the culture, you can see some very clear realities on how that is playing out. So you could say modern identity is driven by desires. And you can see this by the heroic stories. What's a heroic story from a traditional um, a traditional identity. Usually they're like the military stories where there's a soldier who for the, 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 the good of the mission sacrifices his whole life. He gives up his whole life to protect his nation or his, his uh, squad or to, you know, to fulfill the mission. He gives great sacrifice to this external mission, this external good. What, what's the heroic story of the modern identity? Boy, they're, they're, they're kind of growing on trees. Uh, and they've been, they've been around for a while. I mean, one that's easy to point to is maybe you've seen the movie Babe. It's the story of a little pig. Anybody? Hey, I, I, well, if you haven't seen it, I'll tell you it in 30 seconds. It's, it's the story of this little pig who lives on a farm. And this little pig wants to be a sheepdog. And throughout the entire movie, everybody says to Babe, you can't be a sheepdog. You're, you're, you're a pig. You're not a sheepdog. Can't do it. You know what happens at the end of the movie? Babe gets to be a sheepdog. You see, it's like th this, this heroic narrative of, of the modern identity is 
throwing off the traditional one. It's any sort of like somebody else has a say in who you are. Somebody else tells you what the ultimate good is. No way. Babe needs set free. You know, babe needs to throw off the, 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 the roles of a pig and he gets to be, fulfill his ultimate desire of being a sheepdog. That is a modern identity on display. Uh, Elsa in the movie Frozen is another example of a modern identity, a, a heroic story. What, what is Elsa doing? Elsa's, I mean, you, you know it from her song. She says, they've, you know, be the good girl I've always supposed to be. No way. Throwing it off. Let it go. Let it go. I'm going to fulfill my, my ultimate desires. I've gone inside and this is who I am. And my parents and my sister and my community, they have no say over this. Let it go. I'm free now. The, the, these are the heroic storylines of the modern identity. So modern identity is, uh, traditional identity is driven by duties. Modern identity is driven by desires. Well, in the modern identity, who gets to say if you're a good person? Who's the decisive validator in the modern identity? And this is what Charles, Charles Taylor says. It's so interesting. The modern identity has done something, according to Charles Taylor, that's never been done before. The modern identity is actually making you the determiner of whether you are a good person. It's actually putting you in the place of being the decisive validator. A anybody going to volunteer for that? Like, do you even have the same desires at lunch that you had at breakfast? And you are put, you know, the weight is put on you to figure out, you got to go inside and you got to find your own truth. And then you're the only one who can declare whether or not you're a good person. You, you, you have to carry all of that weight. And so there are some good positive things that have come from the modern identity, but it is so crushing. Charles Taylor says nothing like this has ever been put on the shoulders of children. Because we're not just asking adults to do this. We're asking nine-year-olds to go into their own hearts and find their truth and then come back to us and tell us how to respond. It's crushing. But you know what else it is? It's also incredibly fragile. It's one of the reasons why we cannot debate anything anymore. Because if you have a modern identity, then you have gone inside, you've done your own solo search, and you've come to your conclusions on who you're supposed to be. Now you come back to the world and you say to the world, affirm that, believe that, that's what, that's what I'm about. And if someone has the audacity to say, I don't think so, you crumble. You, you, you fall apart because guess what? You're not sure either. You're, you're not sure either. You, you know you're inconsistent. You know you're back and forth. And so this modern identity is both, um, it's, it's both crushing and it's fragile. You have to carry all the weight of determining who you are, this unique identity, that you're unique in the world and no one's ever been like you. Could you be, can you imagine being told that as a nine-year-old and then having to carry that? And then being your own decisive validator? You can't trust anyone else to do it, so you're the only one who can, and yet it crushes you. So but both are still present in our culture, just to be clear. The majority of the world is actually a traditional identity. It's the West that has moved into this modern identity over the last couple hundred years. So both are present in our culture, and you may have grown up more with one or the other, but neither of them will provide what you actually need to navigate this broken world. Jesus offers a gospel identity, and this gospel identity gives you the resources to navigate the world. Now, I, I told, I told our, our guys back there that this last part, I don't have notes for it, and I was just going to check the time and kind of riff, um, but it is already quarter till. So uh, it, this is, it's too important to not do, so I'll just, I'll just try to do it as, as quickly as, as possible. Listen, if, if I am believing the gospel, if the gospel has actually truly pierced my heart, then it will make you the most stable, peaceful, peace-loving person in the world. And, and let me try to show you how. We, we love to talk about the gospel this way. The gospel tells us that we are worse than we think we are. The gospel tells me I'm worse than I think I am. That my sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. But not just anybody. The Son of God had to die for it. The gospel also tells me that I'm far more loved than I could have ever dared to hope. That while someone had to die for it, the one who had to die for it wanted to die for it in order to rescue me back to God. Now, if that's the story of the gospel, that my sin is worse than I think it is, it's a way bigger problem than I want to admit, and yet 
I am far more loved by the rescuer than I could have ever imagined, then you know what that does if you receive that? Not only does it make you alive, it makes you humble and confident at the exact same time. It makes you humble because you realize that you need to be rescued. You realize that you could not actually rescue yourself. You need Jesus to rescue you. That's humbling. But you know what else is true? It makes you incredibly confident because Jesus sacrificed everything to rescue you in the only way that matters. And he didn't do it because you earned it. He did it just because he loves you. You know, if you think of these four chapters in the book of Romans, chapter five, six, seven, and eight, chapter five, we read it in our liturgy. Paul says, I got something crazy to tell you. You can have peace with God. You, you can have peace with God. You can be justified. You can be declared right with God. The war can be over. The peace that sin shattered can be restored. You can be made right with God. And then the rest of Romans chapter five is crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. The gospel is so crazy. So much so that by the time Paul gets to the beginning of chapter six, do you know what he says? He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if the gospel's that crazy, if God forgives like that, then maybe I'll just keep sinning so that grace may abound. If it's really that crazy, then what does it matter what I do? And Paul says, no, no, you don't, you don't understand it. You don't understand it. It is crazy, but that's not the right response. And then in chapters six and seven, Paul shows us that life as a Christian is, it's, 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 a, it's a backwards, upside down, two steps forward, one step back. He says, the stuff that I want to do is the stuff that I don't do. And the stuff that I say I don't want to do is the stuff that I end up doing. He says, I'm a mangled up mess inside. I'm fumbling and bumbling and failing all the time. And by the end of chapter seven, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know what his answer is? Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says that crazy gospel that yes, you still are a mangled up mess. Your motivations are a mess. Your actions are a mess. But if you have run to Christ, there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. And then he ends chapter eight by saying this, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, nothing inside of you, nothing outside of you, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Do, do, do you see what that's saying? It's saying that the gospel identity that Jesus offers, like the traditional identity, is a truth outside of you. But it's not an arbitrary truth. It's a person. And so you, you have to align your life with this, this ultimate good, this external truth, whose name is Jesus. And like, like the modern identity, you do have to bring that truth into your heart. And you do have to ask yourself, do I believe this? Is, is this actually something that I, that I trust and that I'll actually let my internal life be reoriented and then turn back to a world that sometimes does not understand how I'm living my life? You, you see, it's taking dynamics from both, but it's something completely other. This, this, this reality will bring, like if you think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, the ridicule and the persecution that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, they're not going to destroy you anymore. Because the whole point of what Paul's saying in Romans is, do you know who the decisive validator is of the follower of Jesus? It's God the Father. And Jesus says that I have won his smile for you. And if you have run to Christ, now the decisive validator, the only one whose opinion matters, is smiling at you and you can't lose it. It was never what you did that earned it. And so no matter what you do, you can't lose it. It creates humility because you needed to be rescued, but it creates incredible confidence because it can never be lost. And now if you navigate this world, as you look at this reality of the loss of peace and the longing for peace, as you look at the realities of persecution and relational conflict, it equips you in a way to be able to navigate those conversations as a humble, confident person. It changes your identity. You see, the gospel has to short-circuit what the culture is offering you. And if you don't ever let the gospel short-circuit what, what, uh, what the culture is teaching you, then you're going to have a whole bunch of gospel data in your head that never, ever changes your heart. Because the water that we swim in, the oxygen that we breathe, is forming you. It's giving you either a traditional identity or a modern identity. But Jesus wants to give you a gospel identity. A, a, an identity that's not fragile and it's not crushing. Because do you know what the gospel says? 
The gospel says that if you've run to Jesus, now you are working from love, not for love. That all the good deeds that you do, Christians do good deeds, but we don't do them for anything. We're not doing them to get something back. We're doing them because we've been loved, and now we look at the world and say, oh, the, the world needs help. The poor need served. The hungry need food. And we do those things not to get something back, but because we have been loved. We're working from love, not for love. And listen, that will make you a, a unique person in the world. It will make you a stable person, a peaceful person, a peace-loving person. The question for you is, who is your decisive validator? Who gets to tell you whether or not you're a good person? And the message of Jesus is that if you come to me, the only decisive validator that matters is going to look at you and smile at you for the rest of eternity. He's going to welcome you in, and you have all the things that you've ever longed for, whether you know it or not. So we end our services with communion. And as you come to the table, that's the invitation for you to wrestle with who is your decisive validator. Is it your family? Is it your community? Boy, that can be suffocating. Is it yourself? That's crushing and fragile. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has won peace with God for us. And now if you've run to him, you are welcomed at the table. So if you're a Christian, man, we invite you to come up here, get the bread and the cup in just a minute. If you're not a Christian, I would invite you to wrestle with that, 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 that question of who is your decisive validator. A couple prayers on the screen uh, that, will be, or, that are in your bulletin that will be helpful as you try to process that. If our service will come, let's pray. <clears throat> God, I, 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 I know that we've, uh, that's a lot. It's a lot to consider and it's a lot to, to digest. And at the same time, God, we need your help. Uh, we, we, we want the wires of our hearts uh, to be reworked. Uh, we want them to be, the, the, the identities that we're being offered in this culture to be short-circuited. And we want the gospel to pierce us at a deeper level that changes the way that we see ourselves, changes the way we see you, and changes the way we navigate the relationships that you've given us. God, we, we, we affirm what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. God, we, we, we recognize that this world is, is a, a world that has lost peace, but we recognize that Jesus has come to restore it. God, would you give us eyes to see? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.